continuing our study through this uh, wonderful New Testament book, this letter that was written by Pastor Peter to uh, believers that were scattered uh, throughout uh, the land of Asia Minor. Many of them had left Jerusalem during the persecution probably. Some of them he probably knew personally, maybe even pastored them for a time when they were in Jerusalem. And uh, one of the main themes of the book of, of 1 Peter is, is how we respond to suffering. It uh, deals a lot with that in chapter number 1. And, and then when he comes into chapter 2, he begins to talk about how that even in the midst of our suffering, we can honor God by, by living a life that is righteous and a life that is holy. And uh, he discusses in chapter 2 uh, uh, our responsibility toward government, um, how as uh, citizens we should submit ourselves to the authorities that God has put over us. And, and then he kind of stays with that theme as he talks about how servants are supposed to obey their masters and uh, talks about how important it is as Christians that we, uh, we submit to authority on the job. And so he's kind of addressed how Christians live in the culture and the community in general, and he's gotten a little more specific as he talked about, you know, your personal occupation and, and, uh, and everything. And, and then in chapter 3, he opens up by taking it a, another step closer, if you will, and he talks about the responsibility to honor God in our marriages. Now, if you're not aware, let me make you aware tonight that Satan wants to ruin your marriage. If you're married in here tonight, know that. You are in Satan's bullseye. If you're a young person in here and you hope to be married one day, understand that even now Satan wants to plant... uh, just evil seeds in your life that may one day bring forth evil fruit that could ruin your marriage. Because marriage is the most sacred institution on earth. I believe that. When God created Adam, he said it was not good for him to be alone. And so he made Eve and he brought Eve to Adam and it was God himself who performed the very first wedding ceremony. He was completing that only part of his creation that he intentionally left undone. Because in that very special relationship between a husband and wife, God was painting a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. That is why the marriage relationship is so important and why it is a special target for Satan to this day. That is why he has worked so hard in American culture to undermine biblical values as it relates to the home and marriage. He wants to destroy God's definition of marriage. And we see that in our culture today, that a a, a vast number of people accept an idea and a definition of marriage that is different than God's definition of marriage. God's definition definition of marriage is one man and one woman for one lifetime. That's God's definition. Satan hates that because it is such a great picture of the relationship that Christ has with the church. But the result of Satan's focused attacks on marriage is that it often feels more like running a gauntlet than walking a rose garden. Statistically, half of all marriages will fail. But biblically, yours can succeed. God was the one who created marriage and he's the one that we should look to then for the instructions on how to have the best kind of marriage. 
We might find help in the things that the world says and the things that the world writes, but we will definitely find the instructions that we need to have the right kind of marriage in the Word of God. There is no such thing as a perfect marriage. Let's let's make sure we're on the same page there. Because whenever you have a marriage, you have two sinners existing together in the same home, sharing a life. And any time you get two sinners together, there's a potential for conflict. It's never going to be perfect. But we can have a blessed marriage by learning what God says about marriage and obeying what God says about marriage, we can experience the best kind of marriage. And there are a lot of passages in the Bible that deal with this, but 1 Peter 3 verses 1 through 7 is a great one. Tonight we're going to cover the first six verses, and uh, Lord willing, next week we'll look at verse number 7 on its own. But let's begin tonight by reading verses 1 through 6 of 1 Peter 3. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair, of wearing of gold, or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price." For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Let's go ahead and read verse number 7, which says, Likewise ye husbands dwell with them, that is their wives, according to knowledge giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. I would encourage you to underline in your Bible that expression, heirs together of the grace of life, because that right there is one of the keys to having a marriage that honors God. When you stop to think that a husband and wife who are saved are bound together not only by their marriage certificate or the address that they share or the children that they've had, but they are bound together by a spiritual relationship. They are heirs together of the grace of God. It changes the way that you view your relationship. That your husband or your wife is not just a a partner for here and now, but God has given you a spiritual partner to accompany through life. And that true togetherness is not physical or emotional only, but it is spiritual. The best marriage is one where the husband and the wife both understand how important the other is to their spiritual life, and therefore they work hard to build a spiritual bond in God's grace. Now the Holy Spirit spends the first six verses here instructing wives how they can have a positive impact on their marriage. Women have a tremendous amount of influence. And from my perspective, I don't think many women understand just how much influence they have. Now, I believe that's true of all women in general, but I think it's also true specifically of wives. You have a tremendous amount of influence in your home and on your husband. They have women, wives have the power 
to alter the course of their marriage for good or bad. Now these verses, find, we find instruction in them to all wives. And this instruction is a warning to some, but should be an encouragement to many. Notice with me, first of all, the primary command that is given in, in verse number 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. The word subjection there is another uh, way of, of communicating the idea of biblical submission in marriage. Women, if you've ever heard anybody preach and teach on the topic of marriage, you have probably been shown from Scripture that it is the responsibility of the wife to submit to her husband. And I know that our modern world thinks that that's outdated, and thinks that that is uh, uh, bigoted and misogynist and whatever other word they can use to describe it negatively. They think it's just a bad idea. In fact, even many Christians downplay the biblical notion of submission. Back in 2011, there was a Republican primary uh, presidential candidate debate, uh, and it featured a potential nominee by the name of Michelle Bachman. How many of you remember, no relation, as far as we know, to our Bachmans here, but Michelle Bachman, you remember her? In the course of this debate, the moderator of the debate, because Michelle Bachman was a Christian and uh, said she believed in the biblical roles of marriage, and so she believed... Uh, then naturally and wife submitting the husband, uh, the uh, moderator took the uh, opportunity to ask her, uh, I guess what they thought was a trick question, and asked her if she was elected president, would she still submit to her husband? And her response was to say this. She said, well, I define submission as respect. And therefore, yes, I would continue to respect him. Well, while respect certainly is an aspect of submission, they are not the same thing. There is a difference. To submit means to place yourself under someone else's authority. That's what it means. And to understand this properly, you must also understand that authority is based on accountability. It's not arbitrary. Whoever will be held accountable for the decisions made is the person who has the authority. That's the biblical idea. And in the context of a marriage, the husband is the one that will one day answer to God for how he led the home, and therefore he has the authority to make the necessary decisions to lead. The, the scripture is very clear in this, that God's divine order of the home is that the husband leads and the wife follows. Ephesians 5 says in verses 22 through 24, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Colossians 3.18, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11.3, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. This is God's divine order. Now, it is, it is not because women are inferior. That is an unbiblical notion. Men and women were created equal. Both were made in the image of God. 
And to be honest, sometimes it takes the stronger person to yield to the wishes of the other. But God has ordained that the husband be the head. It is a divine order. Now, men, we need to understand, too, that this is not always easy for wives to do. Because we all have a sinful nature, wives are going to struggle with feelings of resistance to their husband's leadership. Now, this was in particularly complicated as a result of the fall. In Genesis 3.16, God said to the woman, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now, male authority was not a result of the fall. Don't misunderstand. When God created Adam, he gave Adam a job to do, and then he gave Adam Eve to help him do that job. Okay, male authority was originally designed in creation. But what the fall did, what sin did, is it made it much more difficult, made it hard for the woman to submit. She would then desire to rule over the husband and there would now be conflict between them. So biblical submission is putting yourself under someone else's authority. And that's what Peter says wives are to do. They're to be in subjection to their own husbands. Now let me just say this. In several of the passages of Scripture that we've read, there is an emphasis there when it says to your own husband. There is also an unbiblical idea that every woman out there is supposed to be in subjection to every man. That's not biblical. The context of submission in this case is inside the marriage. So the wife submits to her own husband. Now when it comes to submission... There are two key elements of biblical submission. The first element is what I call openness. That is an open dialogue and an open flow of communication between husband and wife. You know, a husband and wife are not always going to see eye to eye. How many of you are married in here and you figured that out? All right, good. How many of you are not married and you figured that out? Okay. Not always going to see eye to eye. I, I, you know, I've, I've sometimes I've heard um, maybe like uh, somebody speaking at a, uh, a marriage seminar and, and they'll make a statement that my wife and I have never had a fight before. I'm thinking to myself, either A, you're lying, or B, you have no idea what we people in the real world deal with. <laughs> I don't trust somebody who says we've never had a fight before. You've had a disagreement before. Now, you may not call it a fight, but you've not seen eye to eye before. There's been a a kerfuffle, a a skirmish, a disagreement. You've had a conversation, you know. Whatever you want to call it, when you get two sinners together, it's going to happen. Now, when there is a disagreement, then the wife and the husband need to be able to communicate openly about that. For the wife's part, when it comes to biblical submission she should respectfully state her opinion when there's a disagreement. And if she's behaving in a godly manner, as 1 Peter 3 lays out, the husband will naturally be inclined to hear her out. Doesn't mean he always will, but that will be his inclination at least. Because a wise man will hear what his wife has to say. Guys, if you are smart, you will realize how smart your wife is. I know she's smart. She married you. 
Okay, well, maybe that's not the best example for intelligence. But she's got some wisdom. And if you are wise, you will learn to draw from that. She knows, a wife knows her husband better than anybody, and she's the most qualified to advise him. Proverbs 31 talks about how a husband can trust in uh, his, his wife if she is a virtuous woman because she will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. So the first key element of biblical submission is openness, but then there's the second element, which is the element of obedience. I remember in our marriage vows, we included in the part, in part of that, when Lane was saying her vows to me, to love, honor, and obey. That was, that was and is still the traditional wording of a marriage vow. You know, we were mocked for that. We were mocked by family members for that. Oh, you expect her to obey you? Well, you know what? Biblically, as we'll see here tonight, if there is a disagreement and the husband says, this is what we need to do, this is the decision I'm making as a family, for our family, then it is the wife's responsibility to obey, to do what her husband says and follow his leadership. You know, that attitude of submission should be maintained at all times, but it's really tested when there's a disagreement. When, you're, when you see eye to eye and everybody's on the same page, there's no discrepancy there, that's easy to submit. But when, when there is a, a difference of opinion, the wife has to make a decision of whether or not she's going to follow her husband's leadership or resist it. A wife should not expect her husband to always come to the same conclusions as she does. He sees things differently and he will have to answer to God for the decisions that he, has, that he makes. He is going to be a wise man if he does what he believes is best, even if that means doing something that, that the, his wife may not fully agree with yet. Now, here's the biblical principle. It's on the screen there behind me. If a husband's wishes do not contradict God's word, then the wife should follow his lead. The only exception is if the husband is trying to lead in a sinful path. I believe then the wife has the responsibility to obey God rather than man. Verse number 6 here um, in our passage talks about the example of Sarah who obeyed Abraham. Titus chapter 2 and verse number 5, the older women are to teach the younger women to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands. Now this concept I know is outdated in Western culture. It's supposed to be totally 50-50, right? The family is a democracy. That's the world's idea, but God's design is different, and God's design is the right design. God has charged the wife to obey her husband as long as he does not contradict God's word. So the wife, the primary command here is be in subjection to your own husband. But then, notice in verses 1 and 2, Peter talks about what I will call a powerful conversation. And the word conversation here, the biblical word conversation is talking about a way of living, not just the words you say. Verse 2, while they, the husbands, behold your chaste conversation. Verse 1, if any obey not the word, they may also without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. So in this context, Peter is talking about the power of the wife to influence a husband who is not living in obedience to the word of God. The wife has the potential power to save her husband from disastrous consequences by living a godly life. 
So rather than these, this passage being one that puts women in a place of, uh, of subservience and, uh, um, and that degrades women, this is actually a very empowering passage because it shows how that a, a, a wife can use her influence for good. Notice how it says again in verse number one that if any, and that is if any husband is the idea in the context, if any husband obey not the word, they, that husband, also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. The, the phrase there, may be won, it means to rescue. Same idea when we talk about soul winning, winning a soul to Christ, you know, rescuing that soul from danger. The wife has the potential power to do that just by living a godly life. Notice with me three important points in these verses about how the wife can win her husband. First of all, this winning can and should be done without nagging. Notice back in verse number one, there's an expression here. It says, they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives. That phrase, without the word, it's not talking about the word of God. It's not saying without the word of God, you don't need scripture. No, what it's saying is without words from the wife. A wife, think of it this way, says more with respectful submission and a godly lifestyle than she could ever say with her words. She says more with respectful submission and a godly lifestyle than she could ever say with her words. And ladies, you just need to understand this about your husband, your future husband, your son, your son-in-law, or any man that you encounter on planet Earth. Men do not respond well to nagging. All right, this is not just humorous folklore either. There are Bible examples to support this. I want to show you a couple. Turn to Judges chapter 16. I'm not saying that how men respond to nagging is right. I'm just trying to show you the truth and, and help you understand why it is more important to show respectful submission and live a godly lifestyle than it is to bombard a man with your words. Who was the strongest man physically in the Bible? Samson. All right? Judges 16, we find the story of Samson and Delilah. And in this passage, Delilah's trying to figure out what the secret of his strength is, and he won't tell her. He keeps giving her, keeps lying to her, telling her it's this and that. Notice verse 16. It came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him so that his soul was vexed unto death. Did you see that? And, and by the way, this is Holy Spirit commentary on the situation. This is not a quote of any individual character. This is Holy Spirit commentary here. The strongest man on earth despaired of his life because of a nagging woman. All right, let me show you another passage. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Again, I'm not, I'm not justifying Samson's actions, nor am I going to be justifying David's actions in this next passage. I'm simply pointing out truth. 
2 Samuel chapter 6, verse number 20. We have this incident where David is bringing the ark back and he's excited and so he's celebrating and you're probably familiar with the story. It says in, that he had, uh, he had been dancing and he had been celebrating and in the course of it, he had lost some clothing, all right? And so David returned to bless his household, verse 20, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. Now, Michael was one of his wives, all right? He had multiple, but one of his wives, and, and said, this was Michael, his wife, speaking to King David, how glorious was the king of Israel today who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. And David said unto Michael, It was before the Lord which chose me before my father and before all his house to appoint me ruler of the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord, and I will yet be more vile than thus, and will be base in mine own sight, and of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. And you know, from this point on, David and Michael were estranged until their death. I'm not justifying David's actions, nor am, I, nor am I necessarily condemning what Michael said, but how she said it was a problem because her words were taken by David in such a way that he said, you know what? Those maids that you said I was, you know, uh, shaming myself in front of, I'm going to be had in honor of them. And the impl implication is, but not of you anymore. We're done. Now that wasn't right. But my point is this. Neither of these women achieved anything good with their nagging and scolding words. Winning your husband can and should be done by living a godly life that speaks louder than your words ever could. That's what it means when it says may without the word win your husband. All right, secondly, the godly wife can be used by God to rescue a wayward husband when her life is pure. When her life is pure. Back in our text in verse 2, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. The word chaste has the idea of, of uh, pure the word that's translated chaste, it means pure, chaste, modest, innocent, or blameless. And it's, it's more than just avoiding immorality or being technically faithful to your wedding vows. It speaks of a heart attitude of purity that's demonstrated through a lifestyle of modesty and purity. Listen, this is something that our world has, has absolutely thrown by the wayside long ago. The idea that women... It used to be that women as a whole, it was just understood that they were going to be chaste, they were going to be modest, they were going to be always considered the, the, the better of the two genders in that regard. Not anymore. The world actively encourages women to live loose life, lifestyles. And this idea of having a chaste conversation means that, this, that the wife is not just technically avoiding immorality, but she has a true heart of purity. 
And really the core of this issue as it relates to the marriage is the one is an issue of trust. If a husband cannot trust that his wife is going to be faithful to him, that she's going to be pure in every way, if he can't trust her because she's seeking the attention of other men, then she will not be able to influence him for good. Again, Proverbs 31 verses 11 and 12 says of the virtuous woman, the heart of her husband doth safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. And a woman who lives loosely, flirting with other men, wearing immodest clothing, posting questionable pictures on social media for all to see, and and things like that, puts a legitimate question mark in her husband's mind. And if he cannot trust his wife to be discreet and chaste, then she will not be able to influence him for good. But then third, this winning of the husband is best accomplished when the chase lifestyle is coupled with respect. Notice again verse 2, while they behold your chase conversation coupled with fear. The word fear does not mean fright, but reverence or respect. The wife should not be afraid of her husband. That's not a loving relationship. The Bible says that perfect love casteth out fear, but a wife should respect her husband. Uh, Ephesians 5.33 says, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now, ladies, it would be very easy for you to respect your husband if he always acted respectfully. But you know, even when the husband is not obeying God's word, as is the case here that Peter is discussing, The wife should still show the husband respect if for no other reason than God commands her to. This is because God has designed men to respond to respect. You know, a wife responds to different different things differently. A husband and all men in general respond to respect at a very deep level. And when a wife demonstrates her appreciation and admiration for her husband's accomplishments and his achievements, and when she communicates that she values him as a man, a husband will naturally respond positively. When a wife withholds that respect from her husband, Satan will try to take advantage of that to try and drive a wedge between the two of them. Every wife needs to understand the importance of respect toward her husband. Wives, you have the potential to do a great good with your influence. You have the power even to win a wayward husband by the grace of God. So let this be an encouragement to you. If your marriage is not what it should be, if it's not what you wish it was, you have the power to make a positive difference. And then finally, number three, as we close, there's some words here about the proper cosmetics. Oh, yes, we're going to go there. But don't worry, we're going to, we're going to stick with what God actually says. Verse 3 says, Who's adorning? The wife's adorning, that is. Let it not be that outward adorning of the plating of hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. And these verses and the verses that follow expand on the concept of a chaste conversation. And really, it's talking about the nobility and the strength 
of a submissive and a respectful attitude. Verse number three discusses modesty in appearances. The word adorning there is beautification. You know, women are very good at this, at at adorning themselves. But some people have taken this verse out of context, and you may have heard of certain uh, religious groups that, uh, for instance, they teach that women um, should not curl their hair or braid their hair or do anything fancy with it. It should only be done one simple way. Or uh, religious groups that teach that women shouldn't wear makeup or you know things like that. And they go to this particular verse and they say, see here, the Bible says that, that a woman shouldn't do that. That's not what this, this passage is teaching, by the way. It's very clearly not teaching that braiding your hair or wearing jewelry is a sin. How do I know that? Well, let's let's just say we took it literally. Let's go through the verse. If we took it absolutely literally as saying that that um, oh, it's a sin for a woman to do these things, it says, let it not be that outward adorning of the plating of hair. That's the idea of dressing it up, whether through braiding it, curling it, you know, doing whatever. You know, my mom, when I was growing up, she and she and her best friend would have perm parties, you know. And I don't know what they put in those perm chemicals, but my goodness, it stank so bad. We would just, my brothers and I, we would leave the house. We'd spend two hours out in the woods, you know, throwing rocks, anything just to get out of there. They could weaponize that stuff. But anyway, see here it says that it shouldn't be the plaiting of hair, so it's a sin to dress your hair up, all right? And it says that the outward adorning should not be of wearing of gold. Therefore, it's a sin to wear Jewelry, and it says that it shouldn't be of putting on of apparel. Therefore, it's a sin to put on. Wait, that doesn't work, does it? (laughs) No, it's not talking about that these things are prohibited. What it's saying is it's cautioning against too much emphasis on the outward and too little attention given to the inward attributes of godly character. That's what it's talking about. This isn't in my notes, but let me just say to to all of you married women out here, you need to look your best for your husband. You need to, okay? That's all I'm going to say about that. But you know, there is a saying that says, beauty is only skin deep. There's a lot of truth to that. Because that outward beauty, it can fade. Verse 4 in contrast, lists the ornament that makes a woman truly beautiful in God's estimation. It says, let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, doesn't doesn't fade away over time, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. This is what God says is what makes a woman truly beautiful. This ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. What is meekness? Some people mistakenly think it's weakness. It's not. It takes an incredible amount of strength to be truly meek. I recently heard a description of meekness that I think is fantastic. It really stuck with me. Uh, The person was describing meekness and they said, meekness is knowing how to use a sword, but knowing when to keep it sheathed. That's meekness. And the quiet spirit here is not utter silence, but it's knowing when to speak and how to speak 
and not speaking in a way that draws attention to yourself. Proverbs 7 and verse 11 says of the strange woman that she is loud and stubborn. She talks to attract attention to herself. But God says a meek and quiet spirit is of great price. The world may not value these things much, but God does. Now such meekness and quietness can only come from someone who has an enormous strength of character. I really, I, I firmly believe that. Any woman can fly off the handle, lose her temper, scold, nag her husband, live loosely to attract the attention of every man that she passes. Only a woman who has true strength can wield her influence to conquer the heart of a stubborn man. There is nobility in a chaste, respectful, submissive spirit. And for the proof of this, the Holy Spirit reminds us of the examples of the holy women of old. Verse number 5, For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves. The holy women. They adorned themselves in this meek and quiet spirit, not because they trusted in their husband, not because they trusted in themselves, but because they trusted in God. And they recognized that God's plan was the best plan. And so then they were in subjection to their own husbands. Why? Because they trusted in God. And then one particular lady is named. You know, there are many that we could look at. We could look at Ruth. We could look at Esther. We could look at Abigail. We could look at women in the Old Testament who demonstrated what it meant to be a virtuous woman, to be of a meek and a quiet spirit, to have that, that enormous strength of character. But God picks Sarah. Abraham's wife. And I, I know that this is by God's design because when you look at, this, at Abraham, he was not an always an ideal husband. All right? He made some very big mistakes, some that put his wife in harm's way. But you think about what Sarah did. God called Abraham to leave her the Chaldees and go to an a place that would be told him later. And what did Sarah do? She went with him. God promised Abraham that he and Sarah would have a son. And though it took a little while, you know what happened? Sarah finally got to the place of faith. And according to Hebrews 11 and verse number 11, by faith she conceived. She had faith and bore the son of promise to Abraham. Was she perfect? No. Was Abraham perfect? Absolutely not. But she was a woman who God holds up as a good example of a lady who could trust God and submit to her husband. Now, a woman who could submit and respect a man as deeply flawed as that man may be is a woman of true strength and nobility. Sarah demonstrated respectful submission even though Abraham made some big mistakes, demonstrating that she had that strength of character. Now next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at just one verse of Scripture. We're going to spend our whole time on that one verse that talks about the duties of man, the husband, and what he is supposed to do. But the truth is that a godly marriage requires the work of three. 
The husband and wife must work together with the Lord to make a marriage what God designed it to be. A marriage can be heaven on earth when God's plan is followed. The role of the wife is to wield her powerful influence in the marriage by living a submissive, respectful, and godly life with a meek and quiet spirit. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us the owner's manual for life. And though we, we fall short of following these instructions far too often, Lord, you are always gracious and merciful to us when we repent to restore us to a right fellowship with you and to help us be in a right relationship with others. Lord, I, I want to pray right now for every home and every marriage that's represented here this evening in our church. We are under attack. And Satan wants to destroy that institution of marriage that is such a beautiful picture of Christ in the church and wants to, to rob us of the blessing that comes through a godly marriage and to rob you of the glory that you deserve for it. Lord, I pray that you would deliver us from that evil. Strengthen us against the temptations of the devil. That every husband would love his wife that every wife would respect her husband, that, Lord, you would be glorified in our homes. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.